This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. To uh, begin, I'd just like to say that uh, it's really great that uh, all of you have come here today, and I'm really looking forward to all your questions. Uh, please bear with me if I take a little while to think through some of the questions that uh, you may ask me. So the way that we're going to do it this, more, uh, this afternoon sorry, is that um, I already have a list here of all the questions that have been sent to me uh, during the week, about 17 of them. So we might be here for a while, uh, but obviously it may not capture every question that everybody might have. So I'm happy to stay as long as people have questions. Uh, I've spent the whole week uh, reading out on almost every book that I have could think of conceivably on Genesis. So uh, yeah, I do hope that I will be able to answer some of your questions. So I think what's really important now is we go to God in prayer and uh, we ask him for his help. You can always ask me a question. Yeah, I, I started recording. Thank you. Um, so um, I've, uh, I've, I've opened up the chat so you can write to me directly if you have any questions or if you want, you can just, uh, uh, I will allow you to unmute yourself uh, and uh, if you want to uh, speak up and chat, uh, you, you can definitely uh, just uh, call, follow on from what I've said. So let's uh, begin with a word of prayer, and then we can uh, then proceed. Uh, dear Father, as we come before you this afternoon, we thank you so much for your word, your word especially found in the book of Genesis. We thank you that you've given us minds uh, that want to be able to understand intelligence uh, which makes us stand apart from uh, the rest of the created animals. And we just pray that we use our intelligence to know you better. Uh, at the same time, too, uh, we really need your help to gain insights and clarity over some of the issues that we have. And indeed, Father, as we look more and more on your word, uh, we pray that we may sit under your word and also to allow a sense of uh, mystery to be involved and uh, an acknowledgement that there may indeed be some things that may be beyond uh, the capacity of our created natures to truly understand. And so we come before you humbly in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so what we're going to do now uh, is I'm going to show up on the screen uh, the Q&A. Now, um, so we're going to go through the questions one by one. And what I suggest we do is I finish the question. And if that question actually is something that is on your mind, you can then follow up with, um, with any questions on the question which is already there. And then what will happen then is that we can just continue the conversation as we go along. So let me read to you the first question. Okay, so the first question is, what room is there to ask questions beyond the author's purpose after we have arrived, so after we have answered it? Shouldn't having sufficient confidence in the truth in the Bible allow us to be unafraid to consider what is observed in the world instead of brushing aside under commitment of the authority of the Bible? Such questions sometimes come from a place of unbelief, but could also be a genuine intellectual desire to understand more that is coupled with the desire to deepen our confidence in how we read the Bible and the Bible itself. So I think this is a very, very good question. And basically, uh, it asks whether we are able to go uh, beyond just understanding the Bible first, author's purpose, and to then, in a sense, uh, reconcile it with what we observe in the world. Well, that's the way I've understood the question anyway. If you've asked this question, I've misunderstood you, I uh, apologize. So my point uh, that I would like to uh, answer in terms of responding to this question first and foremost is uh, the beginning point 
in really understanding uh, the Bible, right, the very inst first instance is to understand it from its author's intention and to understand what it means in its original content. Uh, the reason why this is important is because if, say, for instance, uh, I'm writing a cookbook or I'm writing poetry or I'm writing apocalyptic literature, uh, then I need to be able to understand uh, what the author is intending to say without taking it out of context. So I think that uh, very specifically, if we look at the, uh, the two forms of uh, information that we have before us, we have the Bible, and we also have, I suppose, observation, uh, which can be classified as uh, science, which describes what's happening in this world. So uh, if we want to say, look at uh, the first, uh, I, I suppose what many people would say would be the clash between science and religion, it would be the argument about uh, whether the sun is in the middle of the universe or whether it is the earth that is in the middle of the universe. Uh, so there's actually quite a lot of misunderstanding about this because uh, even though uh, popular understanding is that the, 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 the Catholic Church of the day was persecuting uh, the scientists. Actually, it wasn't so much the case as the Catholic Church persecuting scientists, but it was actually the, uh, the, the Catholic Church was representing the general belief of the day, of the earlier scientists of the day, where Ptolemy had already said that the Earth was in the middle of the universe, and then when Copernicus came along later, he posited that actually it was the sun that was in the middle of the universe. So I think understanding genre and understanding author's purpose is important because when there was a struggle in understanding what was in the middle of the universe, whether it was the sun or whether the earth, people would turn to the Bible. And often they would use the Bible in an inappropriate way. So let's look, for instance, if you, can you see the Bible? Uh, if you can see the Bible, put a thumbs up. Okay, so you should see the Bible right in front of you now. So if you look in the Bible, if you go to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 5, for instance, which you should see here, right? Right in front of you coming up now. It says, the sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. Uh, now, this is what we do when we speak English, right? We say the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. Uh, and when we use it in the literary sense, we may give the impression that actually the earth is the one which is fixed and the sun goes around the earth. But actually, this is just a, a literary way of saying it. It's just a way that we use as a phrase, right? But it's not actually being used in a scientific way. So when the author of Ecclesiastes writes this, is he writing it as we would speak it, the earth rises, sun rises and the sun sets? Or is he using it in a scientific way? And I think that's why it's important for us to make that distinction in the question which was given to us right at the very beginning, what is the author's intention? What is the genre of the Bible? And is it appropriate then to then uh, use that uh, author's purpose in the text that he's using to answer the questions that we have? Now, this applies very much to, um, to the book of Genesis because we need to kind of have to ask the question of Genesis and to ask the intention of the author. So especially in Genesis chapter 1, are we meant to understand the genre 
as historical as when we see in the book of uh, in the gospel of Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. Those are definitely historical, right? It speaks of a specific time and place in the life of Jesus Christ. Are we meant to understand Genesis in the same way that we understand Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John? So uh, I, I've read this book. I'm going to be referring to a lot of books today. And I read this book uh, recently, uh, which, uh, which I refer to. It's called Contending for the Faith. And um, it's by a really noted uh, a systematic theologian called Robert Raymond. And he has a little chapter here where he tries to argue for uh, creation in the space of six days. And uh, what he does then is he actually spends a lot of time looking at the Hebrew word day and trying to show whether the Hebrew word day is, is a 24-hour, seven-day understanding of the word day. Uh, but to me, that's actually the wrong way of looking at the problem, right? Because the first question isn't the word, the use of the word um, day. The, the first question really is, is the author presenting Genesis chapter 1 in his literary style as a historical document, or is he trying to do something different in the genre that he's written? So coming back again uh, to the question that was asked before us here in this question, uh, are we really meant to understand the author's purpose? So, so the question was asked here, right? Uh, are we meant to uh, ask questions beyond the author's purpose? Uh, well, it depends on how you really understand this question. What, what does it mean by beyond the author's purpose? But I, I take it in a, in a positive light. Uh, you, we are meant to understand the author's purpose first, and then when we understand the author's purpose and how it fits into a genre and the book and the rest of the Bible, then we can understand how it fits into the rest of the observed world in terms of science. Okay? So, if we... Uh, hold on, I've got to let some people in. So, once we understand it that way, then we can then go on to, uh, to, to I suppose, ask ourselves how it fits. So it's not a, in terms of rejecting the commitment to the authority of the Bible, it's understanding clearer what the Bible is actually saying in its original intention. Okay, so anybody have anything to follow up on that or to ask any questions? Anybody? You can type in or you can uh, speak up. You have ability to unmute yourself. Anybody there? I see Dominic talking, but I can't hear anything. Andrew, I'm here, but no questions from me. Oh, okay, great, great. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, Pastor, you were saying yeah, that the, the gospel is historical. Hmm. Uh, so what is the genesis? So what is the answer to that? Okay. So I will give you uh, my, my thinking about it. Uh, as we, we go on to the next questions. La. So we kind of like deal with each question at a, at a time. Okay, so uh, it's a very, very good question that Pauline has asked. So we will move on now to the next question, which really deals with that question. Okay, I've left a lot of white space here because I'm going to actually write stuff at some point in time. Okay, so the next question is, how do we reconcile the biblical account of creation with the latest scientific, archaeological, 
and historical findings and consensus. Specifically, how do we reconcile it with the evidence of early man since a few million years back? While this may not be the aim of the writer, if we do believe in historical Adam and Eve, it seems helpful to reconcile that belief with what we reasonably know in the world. Okay, so basically, there are um, uh, that, 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 there are two ways in which we can view the biblical evidence. Uh, so one way of viewing the biblical evidence is that the Bible basically speaks uh, into this situation, and therefore the science is, is, uh, is wrong. Uh, the other way that, um, that I think uh, I'm... I'm uh, maybe I should tell you what I believe as well, but I, I'm more in favor of is uh, this thing called, uh, it's a technical word called con, cordism, right? Which basically tries to uh, find, sort of, sees the Bible and science as working in a complementary way. Um, but at the end of the day, the Bible is still the authority, la. Each of them, I think, is helpful to a certain degree. So if you wanted to uh, see a diagram, a helpful diagram was the one that I sent out earlier in the, the week. I think it was, it might have been, I'm not sure whether I attached it to the chat, but what the diagram basically says is, um, if we believe that the Bible is the uh, infallible uh, word of God, then we know that what the Bible says in Genesis 1 is that God creates the world, right? And God creates out of nothing. Or the technical word is uh, ex nihilo, right? Okay? Or the Latin word is ex nihilo, out of nothing. So then the question that we are then left with uh, in terms of genre is, is is Genesis trying to show us, is Genesis 1 showing us the how, or is Genesis 1 showing us the who and the what? Uh, sorry, uh, 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 and a and how, sorry, not a how, sorry, and the why, right? Okay, so um, if, you, if you see that, I can't make this any lower. You, okay, you, if, you, if you have to, to draw it, you have to draw it yourself because I have to delete it, right? But, but if we are to understand it in terms of Genesis 1 and 2 as the how, okay, is the how, then that can actually be problematical, right? Because it clashes, the six-day creation, 24-hour, seven-day cycle, uh, clashes with uh, modern science, especially in terms of carbon dating, in terms of like, uh, you know, uh, the different strata of, uh, of, of history, right? You just have to watch like uh, David Attenborough, you know, you see the different strata of fossils and things like that. So if you, if you want to follow Genesis 1 as the how, then what will have to happen is that basically uh, you would then have to uh, question uh, the, uh, the science. 
Okay, so basically, uh, I was reading like this uh, Josh McDowell book. Okay, so this is Josh McDowell book. I don't know if we can see it clearly. Uh, and the Josh McDowell book basically tries to um, say that the science is wrong. Okay, so there have been cases where, you know, why is it if there's all this strata, there's, there's like a tree growing across it, and, you know, can the tree really be part of the different strata of science? Uh, is there some problem with carbon dating? Uh, perhaps carbon dating is misinterpreted. Uh, another way of answering the question also, which some people speak about, is that when God created, uh, God created in 24-hour, seven-day, uh, to give the appearance, uh, sorry, appearance, appearance of age. So basically, uh, what we see now in the carbon dating, in the strata, in the side of mountains and everything, is actually all created all at once by God within the 24-hour, seven days. Okay? Um, but if you choose to look at the Genesis 1, not so much as the how, but the Genesis 1 in terms of saying what, what is about saying about God and, and what, he, what He is doing for man and woman, then that brings us to a different way of looking at the science, okay. So if you if you look at it that way, then what happens then is that uh, you you are then open to the possibility of God as the intelligent, uh, the intelligent designer, so to speak, who is operating through uh, evolution uh, in order to achieve what Genesis chapter one and two say. Uh, now, obviously, science has uh, limitations, right? So science is fundamentally descriptive. Lah, okay? Science is basically you know, seeing things and trying to describe things. So to a certain degree, there will always be limitations with science because you can never find the, the bones of Adam and Eve. And even if you found the bones of Adam and Eve, how would you know that Adam and Eve? You know, it's not as if they left their, their, their like, signature on the, their bones or something, right? And a lot of what we read in the Bible is behavioral, not anatomical. It's not as if um, you know, we can see behavior in archaeology because archaeology is fundamentally anatomical. So um, coming to the second half of the question, which I think is a very good question, is this thing about the historical Adam and Eve. Okay? So are Adam and Eve real people? Now, I think that if we look at the genealogies as we've been going through the book of Genesis, which is really wonderful how we've been going through. So now we're up to Genesis chapter 5 and 6. Um, we see that the genealogy leads to Noah. So the deliberate giving of the name seems to suggest that Adam and Eve must be real people because if they're not real people, then where do the real people begin from? I mean, if it's not Adam and Eve, then is it Cain, is it Abel, is it Lamech, is it Enoch? Uh, we don't know where to start, right? So I think that uh, within the genre of Genesis itself, Adam and Eve are presented as real people. But what is also important is that on top of uh, just uh, Adam and Eve, uh, within the, uh, uh, the Genesis account, we also see uh, the reference to Adam and Eve in parts of the New Testament, like 1 Corinthians uh, 15 in Romans chapter 5, 
verse 12 to 19, and then Acts uh, chapter 17, verse 26. So, if we were to look at the, the 1 Corinthians 15, Romans, and Acts passages, it, it, it's, the New Testament looks back at Adam and Eve as real people. So, if Adam and Eve are real people, consider real people, within um, 1 Corinthians, Romans, and Acts, then we, we, we can also look at them as real people. Uh, I know I had a discussion with a theological lecturer before who argued that actually uh, you can still uh, see Adam and Eve as uh, not real people and, 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 and the New Testament can still look at them as a type, right? as an archetype, which points forward to Jesus. But I wasn't very convinced of uh, that person's argument. I, it's, it's, it's easier for me to understand um, the... Uh, you have more space if you minimize the two-bar ribbon. Okay, thanks. Um, so uh, I, I, I prefer to see Adam and Eve as real historical figures. Yeah. Okay, so um, anybody have any questions on this particular question that has been asked? Okay, so just to remind you of the question again. Okay, if you don't have any questions, I'll move on to the next question then. Okay, so this question is also a very good question. Uh, related to question one, how is how, how do Cain and uh, Seth's wives appear in Genesis 4? And more generally, how other humans appeared? All right, so the, again... There, there are few possibilities um, to, to this question. Okay, so the first possibility uh, is that perhaps, perhaps uh, Cain and Seth's wives were from the line of um, Adam and Eve, just that they are not recorded. Okay, so if you come back with me, oh, sorry, I've got to stop share. If you come back with me to Genesis itself, right, you will notice here, okay, so, so in Genesis chapter 4, which is the passage which the question comes from, uh, is in verse 14, it says that... Um, Okay, wait. Uh. Uh, so, sorry. So, Cain made love to his wife in verse 17, right? Okay, and then in verse 14, uh, whoever finds me will kill me. So, that presents a problem, right? Because if Adam uh, slept with Eve and they only had two kids, which was Cain and Abel, then who are these other people who threatened to kill Cain and who's the wife that Cain marries. So some people say that uh, these two uh, references point to more children from, um, uh, from Adam and Eve. So let's say we look forward to chapter 5, verse 3. So you can see in the, in the genealogy there, 
uh, it says there that um, okay, so when Adam lived 130 years, he gave he 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 gave birth to Seth. But after Seth was born, Adam lived 800 and had other sons and daughters. So this presupposes that uh, there were other children that are not recorded for us in the Bible. And these were the people who eventually uh, had other children. And, and, and obviously, these are the people who threatened Cain. And not just threatened Cain, but also uh, Cain married, took one of the daughters of Eve as a wife. So if we were to um, look back at the text, um, people also point to this verse uh, where it says, um, where is it? Sorry. This is what it is. Mm, no, sorry, wrong. Um, here. Mm, what's the passage you're looking for? Oh, here we are. Oh, sorry. Okay, now I found it. So here in uh, in chapter. Uh, three, it says, Adam made Eve his wife because she would become the mother of all the living, right? So if that is the case, then uh, people say there's this thing called monogenesis. Okay, so basically it means uh, all humanity comes, comes from one, la, mono, one person, which is like Adam and Eve, la. Okay, um, uh, if if you don't view um, if you don't view uh, Genesis one and two as a literal seven day twenty four hour creation, uh, there is another way of understanding the passage. So one other way of understanding the passage is that uh, I need to show. I have a book here called, if I, I recommend this book for, to you before when I uh, send out the questions. It's called, um, Did Adam and Eve Really Exist? So this is a really good book if you are interested in that question. And basically, they, they, they suggest this idea of what they call uh, poly, as in many, right? Uh, poly means more than one, like polygamy compared to monogamy. The idea, right? Where they, they suggest this thing called polygenesis. Okay, and what they say here basically is uh, after Adam and Eve were created by God, they were effectively uh, the chieftain of uh, the tribe of, 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 of uh, human create creatures that God then raised up. So Adam and Eve, like, like the first two, after they cast out, God raised up more. And this is kind of like consistent with science, which basically says that the first uh, human uh, settlements had to start from like a, 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 a DNA of like 100 or 1,000 people or something like that. Like. So, so if you were to complement science and what the Bible is saying, then Cain, uh, sorry, Adam and Eve were like chieftains of a tribe of people who God made to become uh, human. So let me read to you what it says, which I think summarizes very, uh, very well what this idea of polygenesis is. 
it says that um, it is at least conceivable that after the special creation of Eve, which established the first human pair as God's vice regents, and clinched the fact that there is no natural bridge between animal to man, God may now have conferred his image on Adam's collaterals to bring them into the same realm of being. Adam's federal headship of humanity extended, if that was the case, outward to his contemporaries as well as onward to his offspring and his disobedience disinherited both alike. So basically what they're talking about here is that once Adam and Eve were created, God then created uh, more human beings for which uh, Adam and Eve were uh, like uh, chieftains over. Lah. Yeah. So anybody got any questions about that? Sorry, yep. Dominic, Dominic, yep, can I hear you? Okay, um, so just a comment, right? Um, hmm. If let's say following on with the idea uh, from the very first question or the second question that you answered uh, is uh, where we're supposed to, or we should concern ourselves with the why instead of the how. Can you remember the, the second question where you, you pointed out, you know, if we are to look at Genesis 1, mm, mm. if you ask the question of how, you know, things happen and that would sort of present some problems because that would clash. Mm. Rather, you, we, we should concern ourselves with the why. Mm. I mean, am I on the, did I get correctly on that? Yes, uh, that's correct. Right, then would every other question that uh, arises from conflict, such as the question about how did Seth uh, find his wife, mm. because of the lack of information in the Bible. We are, I mean, like as I understand it right, right now, it seems as if we're trying to fill in the gaps, um, but there really isn't any definitive, um, uh, like, you know, information from the Bible mm. to be able to give us a very definitive answer. That's true, but I think that uh, I would be more uh, more nuanced than that. So we cannot say the whole book of Genesis is like an allegory or a parable, right? Uh, so Genesis 1 in particular, uh, using the pattern, like there are a lot of poetic elements to Genesis 1. Uh, you, you can't get away from that reality that Genesis 1 has a lot of poetic elements, like, you know, the, the structure the use of the repetitive words. Uh, and so you could say Genesis 1 has a, a specific literary genre which puts a big question mark out, uh, over how historical it is. But I do think like the person who asked the question about Cain and who he marries and other things is, 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 a, is a legitimate question because the way Genesis chapter 4 and 5 onwards are presented do not seem to be in the same literary genre as Genesis 1. La. So if you read like the account of, uh, of the genealogy of Genesis chapter 5, we definitely are given real names and real people with real dates of when they live and died. So we can't just say, oh, well, that's just all uh, like allegory or parable or, or, or you know, or poetry la, because it's not presented that way. So, right. so it's still considered as a historical genre. I, I think at, at that point, we have to recognize that the historicity of it. If I write a genealogy, uh, I, I, I can't think of a genealogy anywhere in the Bible which, which we would say is not historical. Uh, histor genealogies are meant to be historical. They're meant to give you 
uh, a connection with real time, uh, real space, and real people. So genealogy tells you someone lived at a certain time for a certain amount of space and what the connection with is with other people. So, so I think that that, that that kind of like would give us a very strong signal that uh, Cain and Abel, as well as people that they married and are real people. Right. Okay. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Andrew. Yep, Robert. Between um, polygenesis and the monogenesis, which is the, you know, more viable view or more widely held view? I, I can't oh. say who. I only have one book. <laughs> so hmm? I only have one book, so I can't say what the wide, wide view is. I, I think the problem is that, uh, uh, that the, the creation account has become a very politicized uh, issue in, in the last century. So actually, if you look at church history, and I think that's why we study church history in theological college, we know church history, actually the creation accounts and things like that are, are, have not been... Uh, things which have been widely contested before, um, because actually, uh, the early scientists, uh, like you know Newton, Mendel, people who actually supported and and and, and taught about evolution, they were actually Christians to begin with, and what happened there was, um, they they actually felt that because God had made an ordered universe, then as Christians, uh, you know, science was like a very high calling because you're looking at the created world. And by looking at the created world, you're understanding more of God. See, so I I think that uh, when you when you look at the the explanations I'm giving, uh, they are just uh, like things that make sense of the text as well as what we see around us. And I think fundamentally, what we do have to remember is that we we shouldn't let uh, different views of 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 creation divide us as Christians. And I think just as importantly we shouldn't see that they are gospel salvation issues because um, there are different ways you can interpret it. And, and I think that Christians over the millennia have interpreted them differently and they are still all Christians. Mm. So you don't have a view between the two? <laughs> I, 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 I don't have a view. Uh, I'm split between the two. Lah. Okay. Uh, it doesn't quite... <clears throat> It doesn't, I mean, I think it's a good question because it, so I think one important thing is, and, and what the writers have said is, we shouldn't presume that the writer of Genesis is an idiot. Like he's obviously written something which is uh, very advanced and very, uh, it shows a lot of, a lot of high level thinking. He, he wouldn't just put Cain married uh, this woman and not thought of the question, hey, where did this woman come from? So, uh, obviously, he has put it down there, and he knows that there is uh, going to be this question. But it's just something that he, you know, it, he, it, it is in his, uh, in his intention to to want to explore. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Anybody else? Okay. Um. Let's go on now. Uh. Um. So we only have to question three, uh, so we still got a long time more. I, I expect to be here for quite a while, so I, I'm, I mean, yeah, feel free to drop in and out whenever you feel like it. We will have a bit of a break, I think every, like, I don't know, 45 minutes or something, so that you can sort of cool your brain down, so have a cup of tea or coffee. 
because there are a lot of questions and, and some of them are quite deep and, 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 and really require a lot of theological reflection. So this is a good question too. Uh, do and can we believe in animal suffering and death before the fall? How then does that affect our perception of human death? Okay. Very good question. If we believe in seven-day, 24-hour creation, then uh, uh, in a sense, uh, we're not sure how much animal suffering and death there was before the fall uh, because we're not given the time frame in which creation and, and, and fall happened, right? But if we believe in an in, in in a intelligent design, which is like many, many, you know, God is not working in the 24-hour, seven-day creation process, then I think what we have to say is that Genesis 1 and 2 is not particularly focused on what's happening to the animals, but it's focused very, very specifically on what happens to man and woman. Okay, So human death in Genesis 1 and 2, as we see it, was not um, God's intention for Adam and Eve. So if, if we take the view that God takes, uh, you know, creates man special from animals, he creates human beings in his original intention to be different from the animals. And one of those intentions is that, is that humans were not meant to die. Right? So uh, uh, when God says to Adam and Eve, when you eat of it, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. That shows, in a sense, that the default situation, the default circumstances for the human life must not be death. Now, how does that happen? We don't know. You know, is that because they intrinsically already will not die, or were they supposed to eat from the garden of truth uh, of uh, of life? We don't know, right? But what it seems to suggest is that um, uh, the the human race, as at creation before fall, doesn't go through that normal process ending in in death, uh, and I think that the way to understand uh, what God says is that when humanity dies, there's a spiritual death in terms of uh, the, the breakdown relationship between God and man and woman. And that in itself uh, leads to physical death as a manifestation of the spiritual death. So, um, so I think that... Uh, what we do see, if we want to talk about animals, is uh, if you want to look at things in a concordant way, uh, scientists are very clear that humans are very, very different from the animals uh, in almost every way, as much as we try to find connections with the whales or you know, other intelligent species. But we are very, very dis different, distinct. When it comes to death, especially in the Genesis 1 and 2, what is very clear is that the default situation for this new creation, in a sense, this new being called uh, man and woman, is that death is actually not part of uh, their existence before the fall. Anybody got any questions? Hi, uh, Pastor Andrew. Yeah, uh, who's this? Uh, Wenhao, yeah. Ah, yeah, Wenhao, yeah. Just go on question, right? So, uh, Please. to reconcile this with the fact of the uh, ability to eat from the tree of the fruit of life, uh, because uh, after so after after the fall, right? Like mm. God actually set a 
cherubim and a flaming sword to guard from the tree. So mm-hmm. if, let's say, the assumption seems to be the case whereby even after sinning, right, if uh, Adam and Eve ate from that tree, then they could uh, live forever. That's a very, very good question, Wen Hao. Um, we don't really know uh, whether, was it God's intention that they should eat from the tree of uh, life at some point? Or was it intrinsic within, within themselves that they had ability to be able to live because you see part of the curse is you shall return to the dust right so is, is, is that returning to the dust contingent upon not being able to eat from the tree of life or is it a curse upon humanity themselves that, that there's something that's been changed la? so we don't really know you see because it's a contingent future that never happened right so was, the, was man and woman meant to eat from the tree of life at some uh, particular stage we don't know uh, there's going to be a question later on where it talks about uh, in terms of sin, right? So again, uh, uh, as you will see when we address this issue of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, the presumption we have sometimes when we look at the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is that it's intrinsically bad, right? So they were not meant to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because it's intrinsically bad. But actually, I was reading some uh, very interesting uh, commentators who actually said actually there's nothing in the text that actually says that eating from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil was intrinsically bad. Uh, for all you know, you know, God's plan was that after uh, Adam and Eve uh, at some point matured, they could have had access to eating from the tree of knowledge and good, but it wasn't, it wasn't the, the, the plan of God for them to eat at that time. So there are a lot of, in, in a sense, uh, to answer your question, how we don't really know whether it was contingent upon the eating of the tree of life or whether it was intrinsic within man and woman itself to live forever, but um, but man and woman were not meant to to die uh, when when they were created and put into the Garden of Eden. Hi, Andrew. Nora ah, hi. here. Hi, Nora. Okay. Uh, regard to this, I have a. You might you can correct me if I think wrongly, ah. but I have a feeling that when God created human, right? It, I really didn't think that. I don't think that there was intention of death before the fall because why would God create human to have enjoyed the relationship with them and then at a point that will die because it's when the creation, the time is love, right? And God created us to enjoy. Not only we enjoy the gardens, but also having the um, relationship with God. Yeah. So, so I, I feel like it's really after fall but yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, later, later question about the, the scene or this part because uh, later I ask you. Yeah, yeah, the okay. question also <laughs> another question. But I feel like I feel like that I really personally have a strong feeling that when God created a human, there was an intention of um, death inside. Right at the beginning. Yeah, I, I mean that's a, that's absolutely correct. If you look at the if you look at the text, you look at Genesis one and two. It is very clear that the intention for Adam and Eve in humanity was not to die. La. The default situation was not to die. La. Because the death only comes into the world in Genesis chapter 3 after the fall. And again, if you look at 1 Corinthians, right, uh, it says very clearly that death only came through Adam. La. So it, 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 in the Garden of Eden, there was no death for man and woman. La. Um, another question is, mm. we have a spirit, right? Which is, I believe it's different from 
animals. So if I remember correctly, someone did tell me that human spirit will not be able to destroy because we're a spiritual being, in a sense. Now, our body, yes, we will. At the moment, maybe before the fall, it won't. But because we have a spirit as well, so this view cannot be destroyed at all. It might just put somewhere. I don't know where. But mm. it, it, somehow it makes sense to me. I don't know how to recognize it, but that is my thing. So with the death that introduced, not only physical death, I think we mentioned, we understand it's also a separation from God. Mm-hmm. Yep. But don't know where is this, this spirit go to. La. The only thing is, yeah, that's what I want to. I mean, there's a lot of questions, but also very confused. <laughs> Am mm-hmm. I just carry mm-hmm. on? Yeah. That's I mean, definitely in the New Testament, it talks about how we, have, we all have a soul. And, you know, like, so uh, it's like uh, <laughs> for my son in his study, I put this sign up saying, you know, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world but to lose his soul, right? So, yes. Definitely, the biblical idea is that we all have a soul and that soul will definitely, in a sense, outlive our physical bodies. And so, for us, it's very important where our souls end up because God, you know, God is inviting us to, 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 to be with Him for eternity lah, rather than in judgment. Okay, better move on uh, to the next question. Okay. Okay. Uh, Okay, because we're kind of like moving away from what the uh, Genesis is saying. So let's look at question five. So is there a point to be made that God described the world as good and very good, but not perfect in Genesis 1? Is this a hint that there's a difference between the Genesis 2 state and the new creation, which counts for the difference between uh, very good and perfect? Okay, I think... um. Uh, I, I think I, I need to understand this question a bit more, but the way I've understood it is that the, 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 the lack of the use of the word perfect uh, is, is uh, hinting that somehow that uh, there is uh, imperfection in, 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 in God's creation, especially in the garden. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to show you uh, the Bible's use of this word good la. Okay. So can you see um, this diagram where it says good? You can you see where my thing is? Well, I gotta see where people can see. Hey, you're all blocked yeah. off. How can you see it? Can you see this uh, this diagram here? Is it a pie chart? Yes, that's right. It's a pie chart. Here, can you see this pie chart? Yeah. Okay, so basically the word good uh, literally means pleasing, best, well, prosperity, uh, desirable. So I, I, I think that within the semantic range of understanding what words mean, uh, I don't think we want to make good and very good in terms of opposing perfect law. Basically, what it's saying is that God was, was like, you know, he was very pleased and very, um, uh, it, 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 you know, it, in terms of God's objective view, creation was very, very good. Lah. So it's, I don't think it's actually meant for us to understand uh, the co- to, to, or to make a contrast between Genesis 1 and 2, where somehow Genesis 2 is uh, 
not so good lah. Uh, because I don't think that that's the way we are meant to to really understand uh, the, the the passage. Uh. So um, I I think that it's a bit uh, it's a bit trying to um, look for something in the text which is maybe a bit speculative, because perfect cannot be like oh the superlative right you know it's like superlatives right you know good very good then perfect it, i don't think it works that way it's just trying to show us that actually god's creation was actually very good in its eyes objectively so it is very very good lah. so it, it has no implications in terms of talking about sin or evil or somehow there is something uh, lacking lah. Uh, that's the way i understand it Any, anybody want to follow up on that question or uh, add to it Pastor Andrew here, Andrew here. Maybe yeah, Andrew. So if we think about the new creation in future versus, say, the, gen, the Genesis state, right? Um, uh, just thinking aloud, maybe just with two things first. So, for example, if I look at the previous question, um, we know that in the new creation, the, the lion will lie with the lamb, and presumably animals won't be killing each other if they exist there. Uh, and we know that in Genesis, um, the, the capacity, it could be possible that there was animal death or suffering before the fall. Uh, so is that one difference? Uh, and another difference is that in Genesis 1 and 2, while uh, it didn't happen, I mean, while, um, how much it? Let me just say that in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, the, clearly the capacity for, for sin of man was there. Um, and we did sin. In the new creation, we know that we would not sin because of the new heart that's been placed in us uh, related to, to Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Uh, so is, is it possible that um, the, the new creation, I mean, is there, there must be a difference in some way, isn't there? And is that difference also part of the reason why uh, the new creation is perfect, but uh, the, the Eden version was very good? Okay. Can I just also add on something? <laughs> My understanding of perfect is no room for improvement. That means perfect. Um, when you say good and very good, I don't care whether it's a good or very good, but there is, seems like still have room for in, uh, improvement. But I also feel that how can God still need improvement? Everything from God is perfect. I mean, there's a God nature, right? Isn't it? So, so I, I, I just, I, I, did someone say something? Okay, uh, so I feel like um, that any, especially doing creation, right, everything from God is really come from, because he's a perfect God. Everything from him, the planning, everything is just so naturally and perfect. And it's not like, I see why we're human. Oh, okay, try an error. Oh, this doesn't work. So we make it. Practice make perfect. I try another run, another run, and after to know how many times, then human is perfectly great. It wasn't like that. Is everything just, just instantly and great and it's perfect? That's what been my impression about Genesis one and two. So, so I don't see the difference. I really don't see the very good and good and perfect because I think everything from God is perfect. At least at this, I coming. I'm looking at from this point of view la. But of course, at this point. Chapter one and two, I am perfectly happy with that. <laughs> it's only later seen seen part, then later we talk about it. But that is my impression of it. But Andrew have a very good point about whether God have seen something there and but this here exhibit. But when it come to what uh, the final part, 
the second uh, creations where everything is really just perfect. But I'm not quite sure I agree on that. I don't know how to think about it, but maybe you can help, help to enlighten us. Mm, okay, I think that's a, a very deep, deep question. Uh, that Andrew has asked. Uh, so I'm not sure how many of you actually follow, follow what Andrew asked, but um, but I think that uh, I will try to uh, to 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 just set some questions uh, to 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 talk to think through the issues that Andrew brought up before I actually address it because it's actually the next question, uh, which I think I was I was going to answer that question. But a few things just come to mind. First of all. I think when the author of Genesis uh, wrote Genesis 1 and 2, um, we are not meant, I think, to read it in opposition or contrast to the new creation. Uh, so basically, I think what, in a sense, uh, Andrew might be saying is the new creation is better than the Garden of Eden, right? It's actually perfect compared to the very good of the, the original uh, creation, <clears throat> but I'm not sure whether the Bible, the Bible itself, wants us, or actually the author of Genesis itself, has set out to to make that contrast for us right at the very onset. I, I think that if we if we take Genesis one and two at its at its own merits, it is telling us that it's a very good creation, and without sin actually being there in Genesis one and two, it is actually as good as a new creation, even though, you know, you, 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 we may say that the word is never used to describe it as perfect. So I think that's the first point that I, I, I think that comes to mind. I think the second thing also, which I want to address uh, as we will go on to the next question is, um, your, your question actually touches on the issue of free will. So uh, basically you're saying in a sense that in, because we go to heaven, we're going to have this new heart and therefore, we do not have free will like Adam and Eve had free will. And therefore, so heaven must be better or perfect because we've lost this ability to, to sin like Adam and Eve did. So I, I would kind of ask whether that is a presupposition because uh, as we will see, as we will come, because I'm, I'm going to talk a bit more about the free will and human sovereignty and sin and all that stuff. Um, we, we actually need to understand a bit more about what the exact situation is in terms of human sovereignty and free will before we impute that into the new creation and say, well, therefore, you know, uh, in, the, in the new creation, we have no free will and we're all like puppets and therefore it's perfect compared to what it was before. Okay, so, so maybe with that in mind, with those two questions in mind, we'll move on now to the next question, which is somewhat similar to what Andrew was saying. Where it says, in the new creation, we would not be able to sin as what happened in Genesis 3. This is, not, this is possible as our hearts and minds are renewed and we have a new heart placed in us and we are transformed to be like Christ and have his law written on our hearts under the new covenant brought by Christ's death and resurrection. Why could this not have been done in Genesis chapter 2? Okay, so this is actually a very uh, complex question which really has to do with uh, free will, hum human sovereignty at its heart. Because what is really implying is that uh, in the new creation, uh, we will not have this ability to, to sin like Adam and Eve did because uh, uh, somehow 
our transformation and God's spirit upon us is so great that uh, it, it becomes an immovable object. Lah. So I think that um, I want to show us two diagrams here, which I think might be helpful, uh, which comes from this book, which I super duper would like to recommend to you if you ever get a chance. This is the second time I've read this um, book, and I'd like to really, really recommend it to you. It's one of the best books that I've ever read. It's called uh, How Long, O Lord by Don Carson. And it's called Reflections on Suffering and Evil. And uh, it's, it's, it's really like mind-blowing. Right? It's, it's, he writes really well, and it's just got gazillions of good things to say. Lah. So coming back to uh, the question, um, what, what basically uh, Don Carson said, which I, I think is really deep and profound, is that we have two ways of looking at what happened when, uh, when man sinned. So uh, one way, I think, uh, which is what he says here, is uh, to have uh, reductionism. Reductionism, okay? So reductionism, basically, we choose between God is absolutely, absolutely sovereign. That means he's uh, like all-powerful. My spelling not very good. I can't spell sovereign. Is that the way I spell sovereign? I don't think that's right. Sovereign. Yep, sovereign. Okay, maybe that's wrong. Okay, all and men slash women have free will. So to be reductionist is basically what he says is we want clarity, right? So in order to achieve clarity, we 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 choose and we say, okay, uh, God is absolutely sovereign and trumps man's free will. So basically, God's sovereignty does not allow. Uh, free will from man and God. And that gives us certainty and clarity. But ultimately, what he says is that's unbiblical. Because the, the Bible's picture is not reductionist, uh, men and women, as, as uh, revealed to us in the Bible and Genesis as well, shows that uh, the Bible describes men and women choosing what they want to do. And God actually gives them human responsibility and they are actually uh, punished for the use of their free will. So what he suggests instead is instead of reductionism, he says that actually the right way of um, understanding is compatibilism. That means you have two things which are operating at the same time, right? God is sovereign. I think it's sovereign. Huh? Yep, <clears throat> sovereign. Well, no wonder that wasn't good. This is not right. Oh, how do I edit this? Ah, it doesn't matter. God is sovereign. How do you edit these things? Huh? That doesn't matter. Okay, God is sovereign. Let me undo that. Okay. Must, must write to Zoom and say I can't uh, edit these things. Compatibilism. So God is sovereign. Okay, but men slash women are responsible for their actions, okay? At the same time, men slash women have free will, but God is absolutely con uh, contingent. Okay, so contingent. So what that means is that uh, God is sovereign, he controls all things, but men and women still have ability 
to make decisions and are called to responsibility for their actions. Men and women have free will, but their free will cannot constrain or block God's plans. Right? So he said that actually in the Bible, it's very clear that these two things at work, not just in Genesis, but all over the Bible. And he says that when that happens, if we acknowledge uh, those two things, what we are left with is a mystery. How does it happen? Lah? How can these two factors, God's sovereignty and man woman's free will, operate without being inconsistent? But he said that uh, it's a mystery to us, but it's uh, a, a biblical understanding. And so what he says is actually is like a, it's like a chair, lah, so to speak, right? And so when you have a chair, uh, you have like four legs. And the Bible's four legs are God's sovereignty and free will. And if you take away one side of free will, then the chair will collapse. If you take away God's sovereignty on the other side, uh, then the chair will also collapse. Uh. So if that's the case, right, then... Uh, let me let me let's look at some of the passages in the Bible which seems to suggest this to be true. Um, so let's look at um, uh, the book of John. Okay, so let's look at John, John chapter six, verse thirty-seven. Okay, so John twenty-six verse thirty-seven. Um, it says, all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. So here we see God's sovereignty right? very, very clearly in view. God is the one who gives uh, people to come to Jesus. For I have come down from heaven to do not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but to raise them up, at the last day. So this section here, verse 37, all the way down to verse 39, is very clearly God's sovereignty. But what's really surprising is what comes next, right? For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Father, who looks to the Son and believes in Him, shall have eternal life. So here we see actually uh, there is a compatibilism happening, right? Because... Uh, Verse 40 talks about the choice of people who look to the Son and believe in Him. And so we see here that actually for the biblical authors, there's this mystery that's happening. There's no clarity that's being offered, but they are comfortable with it. Somehow God's sovereignty uh, and man's free will are able to coexist at the same time. So uh, take for instance as well, uh, this other passage, uh, this this passage is actually quite uh, memorable to me because it was one of the first few passages I actually struggled with uh, before, uh, as I was becoming a Christian, and I asked my uh, Bible study leader about it. But in the parables of Jesus, in Matthew chapter thirteen, something really interesting happens, and I want to show it to you. So in Matthew chapter thirteen, uh, it begins by the parable of the sower, right? The parable of the sower. This Matthew, oh, this is still John, sorry. Matthew 13, verse 1. Hmm. Okay, it's still John. Why is it still John? Let's try my other Bible. 
Okay, sorry, this is a bit smaller. Um, so let's go to Matthew chapter 13. And you can see in Matthew chapter 13 that it's about the parable of the sower. And if you notice here in chapter 13, uh, the reason why uh, Jesus speaks in parables is so that it will fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah and it will actually choose and sort out those whom God has already chosen. Right? So in the, in the parable of the sower, we actually see that the, the, the explanation that Jesus gives to his disciples is that these parables are given to, to distinguish between the ones that God has already chosen. And so there's no free will here. This is God's sovereignty in view. But in the parable which comes just slightly later, in the parable of the, the hidden treasure and the, and the pearl, it's all about uh, human response. So the kingdom of God, heaven is like a treasure in the field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Okay, so these are just some of the examples of the passages where we see human, sovereign, uh, human free will as well as God's sovereignty. Some other ones are like, you know, Pharaoh hardened his heart and then God hardened uh, Pharaoh's heart. So as we come back to the question that was asked about the, the, uh, the you know, why didn't God just uh, not allow human free will and uh, just uh, basically <clears throat> do away with human responsibility, we actually, uh, given the the how to uh, say it, we're actually given a non-answer, so to speak, lah. We're given a non-answer. Uh, we are given the non-answer of how actually we just do not understand what is happening. And I think that as we look at Genesis one and two, three and four, whatever, it makes sense, right? Because if God of Genesis one is so powerful. Uh, that he is able to create the world out of nothing, ex nihilo, and he makes life out of non-life, then if God is so great, then how are we, in a sense, truly able to understand you know, how he's able to do things? So one of the things which I found uh, really, really fascinating uh, was when you look at, uh, so we look at Genesis and we look at where Genesis creation is referred to in the rest of the Bible, right? So if you remember one of the most extended uh, passages in the Bible which refers to the whole creation account is the Job passage. So in the Job passage, uh, if you remember, Job is actually... Um, uh, arguing with God why he is suffering and why, in a sense, there is evil in the world. And so if you look at Job, the whole of Job chapter 38, uh, all the way up to chapter 41, is all about uh, God, creation, creation of the world. So he basically challenges Job and says, you know, have you done all these things in creation? You know, have you shut up the sea? Have you made the clouds? Have you made the animals? Have you made the light? All, all you know, so on and so forth. And so at the very end of Job, right, uh, 
it's really interesting because what he's what Job says at the at the end uh, is not so much um, I understand, uh, but he says uh, I I I repent. Sorry, let me just uh, find the passage for you. So here, so in the, in the last part of uh, Job, uh, look at what Job says when he's when he challenges God. He says, "I know you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted." Uh, you ask, "Who is this who obscures my plans without knowledge?" Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful uh, for me to know. Right. So, by the very end of the discourse between Job and God. It's not that Job has a greater insight into how God does things, but rather he acknowledges that he cannot understand how God does things, and he and then basically says, you know, I I I just uh, I put myself in your hands. So I think in that sense, uh, that's why compatibilism is difficult for us to accept because it's a mystery to us and we do not understand. But at the same time, uh, we just have to say God is beyond our understanding. And it's uh, it's it's too great for us to understand. Okay, so anybody got any questions to want to follow up on that? Anybody? So. Sorry, Pastor Andrew. Hmm. So it would seem, right, like with this uh, idea of compat cause it compatibilism, right? Hmm. That, you know, even though uh, we are given human responsibility um, to, to be responsible for our own free will actions, but it in no ways will change uh, the plans of God. So in an instance where if let's say Pharaoh were to somehow have a change of heart, and say, I release your people, I will act grace, uh, you know, like graciously, you know, I will do good to your people. God will still somehow find a way for his people to, you know, to, 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 to be blessed. Huh? You know, so like, in a sense, uh, with, with this over, overarching, you know, like from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelations, uh, it seems as if God has this overarching plan that no matter what our free will actions are, it will never detract from this overarching storyline, if you would like. There must be this end where God ultimately redeems us from our sin. Humans will probably will never have uh, the chance to say, I choose to do good, so therefore I do not need to be saved. Uh, yeah, that is part of God's plan, but I think at the end of the day, uh, what comes through, so in a sense, what comes through in the Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4 account uh, is, like, so I think what, what, what um, Don Carson said very uh, succinctly and, and uh, very perceptively in the book is um, we cannot um, use God's sovereignty as uh, an agenda item to, in a sense, put blame on God lah. Uh, because when we do that, right, we are no different from Eve in the garden. La. So the temptation is if we, if we say God is sovereign and therefore all these bad things have happened because actually it's God's fault, then we are actually like Eve in the garden where we say actually 
uh, we doubt God's goodness towards us, we uh, are, in a sense, um, uh, saying that his motives towards us are actually improper all along. Uh, rather, what I think Genesis 1 and 2, 3 and 4 are really pointing to is that because of the free will decisions of Adam and Eve bring sin into the world, therefore, uh, God has done manifest his good, which ultimately is shown in Jesus on the cross. And instead of responding and saying, actually, God, the, the, the tree you put in the garden here caused me to sin, uh, we should actually be thanking God and saying, actually, you know, thank you, God, so much for undoing the damage that we have done with our free will decisions. So, so actually, it's very interesting, right? Because um, there's this very perceptive, uh, can you still see? Uh, the Job passage, the one I'm circling? Yes. Ah, so in verse 8 of uh, this chapter 40, he, he, God actually says to, uh, to Job, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? So I think what the Don Carson says here is very, very perceptive. He said, you know, part of the problem is that uh, when we, the, the author's intention, really, when we come to the book of Genesis, is to be thankful to God's goodness. But if we, if, we, if we are deceived by Satan, so to speak, then instead of being thankful for his goodness and trying to save us from the sin of Adam, Eve, Cain, uh, Lamech, uh, the whole generation you know, that died in the flood, uh, and say, no, God still is such a good God. He still persists in trying to save us through a line of people, we can actually blame God and be dissatisfied with God and doubt God. And we are actually just no, no different from Eve who listened to the lies of uh, the serpent. Uh, so in a sense, we, we condemn, like what it says there in, in, in Job, right? We condemn God uh, to, to justify ourselves. Like we, so actually, we had no choice. Uh, we, you, know, we, you know, free will was overwhelmed by your sovereign plan. And, it, you know, what can we do? You know, we, uh, we, we are just, we, we couldn't, you know, we couldn't, we, we couldn't, uh, set, you know, stop ourselves before, um, before Satan or before your plan. So, I, I think it's quite interesting because when you think back, okay, so uh, coming back to the, to the picture of uh, the salvation plan, right? When you ask the question, let's say Judas. So for Jesus to die on the cross, uh, he had to be betrayed by Judas, right? So the question we, we would then ask is, uh, is it Judas's fault or is it God's plan? And really the answer is both. Uh, right? it, it is God's plan, but it's also Judas' fault. Judas is responsible for selling out Jesus. And we cannot diminish that by saying, oh, well, actually it's not really Judas' fault. It's actually, Jesus, you know, it's actually God's plan for, for Jesus, right? Because um, you know, when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane and he was praying, God already said, this is the way that is going to happen, and that's it, lah. You know what I mean? So, so we have to be able to live, I think, with that contradiction, with that mystery. I think, yeah. Sorry, Dominic, you want to say something else? Yeah. So, so I mean, if we, if, if uh, on one hand, right, we cannot blame God for our actions, then you know, another way to look at it will be to blame sin, uh, the, the evil, uh, the evilness of sin, like in Romans chapter seven, right when. You know, Paul says in 21, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. 
but I see another law at work in me waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work with me. So I think that in this passage, it, 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 it does seem as if like that humans are always contending with sin. Mm. Sin is right there, no matter what we try to do. It's always thwarting us at our, at our every step. Mm-hmm. Never free mm. from this until um, you know, the work of Jesus uh, is fully done when he comes again. Mm. Uh, yeah, I agree. Uh, what's, that? what's the question? So the question is, right, that when we say that we have uh, free will, it's tough to, it's, it's, it's always something that I, I, I struggle because uh, I can't consider myself fully free um, to make the decisions because it always seems as if there's something pushing me. Like, you know, let's say, for example, if I am swimming right, in a swimming pool, right, there's very little current in the water, right? So I can swim straight if I wanted to, right? Nothing is stopping me from turning left and turning right if I wanted to. Mm. If I swim in the ocean, mm. it's different because there's lots of things that's going to push me and I don't have the ability to do what I want to do. Mm, mm, right. Mm. This idea of free will, it's, it's not really so free. I don't, I, I'm not free to make decisions. I'm not free to make the ability not to sin. If, if that makes sense. But in a sense, the, uh, what the Bible is saying is you're free to make the choice to follow Jesus, though. So if we, if we are able to make that decision, then why, even after we have made the decision to follow Jesus, when we become Christians, mm. why do we still struggle so much? Because uh, of, uh, of, of the fall of Adam, I think biblically that's what it says, right? Yeah. I mean, you see, okay, let's, let's come back. So we, it's good that we just finished Genesis chapter 5 and 6. So uh, Enoch walked with God and he didn't die, right? Uh, so, I mean, so, sorry, spoiler, if you haven't done a Bible study. But he walked with God, he didn't die. So, it shows that actually, yes, we can be sinful. And uh, sin is a current working against us. But Enoch shows us that you can still walk with God. He was not sinless, obviously. right? But the, you know, the New Testament and, and, you know, just mentioned that people like Enoch and Noah, even though they were sinful, they are saved by faith. Lah. So, we, we are not perfect, but the, the current is not so overwhelming that we, we cannot choose God. We cannot choose Christ, right? Cannot uh, renounce faith. Mm. So in the last day, when you stand before Jesus in Judgment Day, we cannot blame the current and say, oh, the current is too strong, and therefore I didn't choose to be a Christian. Because we still, on the last day, have to... Like the Bible says, right? Uh, we will have to give an account for every every word you know we, we have said, every thing we've done, right? So, current or no current, uh, the biblical presentation is uh, we still make choices, la. We still make choices. So, so to 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 expand on your analogy, um, I can choose to swim against the current, or I can choose to swim with the current, la. <laughs> You know what I mean? So, if the current is pushing me towards sin. Everybody's going towards sin. Yes, I can choose to swim towards the current. But I can also choose to swim against the current, and that's that's what uh, that's what Genesis one and two, three and four, uh, uh, you know, are trying to show us, right? That in a sense, the whole world is swimming with the current, but uh, we we actually choose to um, to swim differently from the world. Uh. Andrew, 
Yep. This is talking about free will, right? Um, I got a feeling that maybe before the three, I don't know why there's an ego. Um, before this Eve select the tree of good and evil, right? I think free will was still there because only we didn't know, like maybe they will make a lot of decisions in their life. Lah. I mean, free will, they mean they're free to make decisions. It cannot be just about this decision called free will. Feeling from my point of view is like you're free to make decisions, right? Am I, am I correct this path? Yeah, okay. yeah. But then, then the problem is, um, I have a really few questions on this. Number one is a theory, right? But sometimes human, we are unlike God, have full knowledge of oh, what's going on in future. We couldn't know exactly what happened. So in this case, when Eve and Adam make the theory, which is um, the, the, the consequences will cause death, right? Partly because they really did not know what's going on, or they are still the first human, right? Um, they may not fully understood what does it mean that? What does God mean that? You know what I mean? So that's one thing. Um, and then the other thing is, who introduced the concept of evil? Seriously. I mean, like, it's just like you never introduce salt or maybe sugar to baby. They don't even know what's sugar. So can we blame them or saying that, wow, or have God properly taught them? You know what does it mean, evil? Because they don't even know if God didn't even put the word there. And I feel like because their first car, humana really quite stupid and dumb and make the decision and causing the rest of the mankind have uh, suffered so many years. Um, my next question is like, I feel like God seems like had the worst scenario, like, oh, I created mankind. Oh, now the worst scenario is they still win up, they really go and eat the tree. And they did. And this what happened. But again, the, the, back to the question is, why God didn't train them properly and teach them properly? I mean, there's all this question come up. Lah. Yeah. I yeah, I think, I think those are good questions. Uh, but but we, we, we kind of like remove, re remind ourselves that actually, uh, 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 Adam and Eve are not like pet dogs, lah. <laughs> so, so to speak. Like, I mean, I have my dog here, and then me, I, you know, if he bites me or he poos, uh, I didn't train him very well. But, but I do feel that at the end of the day, uh, it's like what fundamentally what God says to Job, lah, in 40 verses 8 to 11, lah. it's where at the end of the day, uh, we don't really know. La. We don't really know the exact conditions. A lot of the things that you say are speculative. La. Exactly what did God say to Adam and Eve? It's, it's, it's told to us in the book of Genesis. It doesn't tell us uh, you know, how many times God said to them what the warning was. Was there a warning on the ground? You know, like, uh, we don't know. So we are only told what we are told in Genesis 1 and 2. And it's like, it's like, I mean, I'm not a lawyer. It's like the facts of the law are clear, right? <clears throat> when you look at the Genesis 2 account, God made this beautiful garden. He, he, he basically, <clears throat> um, sorry. He basically gave them hundreds of thousands of trees to eat from. And uh, they chose to eat the, from the one tree which they were told they were not to eat from. So they wanted to do so, uh, not because that tree, like the fruit, you know, was like some durian that they really had to eat from, 
But the Bible tells us because they wanted to be like God. So the, if, you, if you really spend a lot of time, I mean, I've, I've got a book. Uh, there was a book here I was reading called Original Sin. Where is it called now? Original Sin. Oh, here it is. Uh, you, you can try reading it if you want. It's, it's, it's really interesting and helpful. Um, but, you know, it's a whole book just on Genesis, uh, you know, I mean, chapter 2 and, 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 and also other parts. But, but if you really think about it, the motivation for Adam and Eve was not an innocent motivation. It's not like, oh, I just ate the, the, the you know, this, from this tree. The motivation from eating from the tree was to be like God. It was to be, to break out of the... Uh, the relationship under God. They wanted to be over God. They wanted to be equal with God. So I don't think that we can make out the sin of Adam and Eve as something that is very uh, innocent or something which is, they didn't, uh, you know, they just didn't understand what they were doing. They, they, they definitely knew what they were doing and the motivations for it were very clear. Like, it wasn't like they accidentally ate the fruit uh, because they mistook it for something else. Uh, but the way that Genesis 2 is presented to us, uh, Genesis 2 and 3 are presented to us, is that I presume that when God communicates, he doesn't communicate like humans do. Like, we know like we, we, we nag our children then they never hear what we're saying. Right? It's like when God communicates, I think it's pretty clear. Like, and it was very clear to Adam and Eve that they shouldn't eat from that tree. And in the end, they did. And God did what he promised. Like, if God didn't did what, do, do what he promised, then he would actually be a liar. Like, because he did say they would die, right? So I think uh, that, that's, that's what I would say. Like, we, we cannot kind of... Um, be, so like in the, in the Job passage, we cannot condemn God and say, actually, God uh, is at fault. And therefore, uh, Adam and Eve are less at fault. Like. Because the whole point of Genesis 1 and 2 coming out to three and four is that the blame is is fully on Adam and Eve's fault. Lah. Yeah. No, I, I don't think I want to condemn God or I condemn God. It's just that I want to understand what is the intention behind for God intentionally, from my point of view, is really intentionally put the truth right in the middle of the garden. And, um, and also just like you mentioned about, well, they eat it so they be like God. Who taught them that they could be like God? How do you know you could be like God? I mean, this is a concept. This is an idea that God gave to them, right? Like, it's like, or no, telling no, no, you. No, 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 no. God, God, God didn't give that to them. The say, uh, when the, you say, the serpent no, you say that. you'll be like us, or maybe the, okay, the serpent. But then <laughs> the good knowledge and the, what are the evil, right? Even, I do remember when you studied Genesis, Eve actually was really aware that she shouldn't. And actually she also said that you don't even touch the fruit. Seems like she give extra restriction on herself. Mm. But then to, later on, maybe it's a weakness that still she, she eat it. But my, my ultimate question up to this point, I still cannot go a very satisfied answer is like, the tree from my point of really intentionally put in the middle. It seems like if you got new, that will happen maybe shouldn't introduce it. Uh, Knowing that yeah. human cannot handle it at all. So actually, um, what some commentator uh, said, which I read, which was very interesting was, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not intrinsically bad in itself. <laughs> so uh, when you actually see uh, later on, when we all go to heaven, 
it actually says that we'll be sitting with Jesus and the 12 tribes judging people. So to judge people means that we will have to know good and evil, right? So actually, the knowledge of good and evil found in the tree in the Garden of Eden, in and of itself, is not intrinsically bad or wicked or evil. But it's like, at that moment in time, God did not want them to eat from it. It's a bit like, I suppose, uh, you know, uh, if I, you know, when, 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 when uh, maybe when kids are young, they shouldn't, uh, I don't know, what can they eat? Uh? I also don't know what sugar? kind of huh? Sugar, whatever. Like, I, I don't know what, maybe, I don't know. They shouldn't like, drink wine. I shouldn't drink wine or something. But then maybe when you get older, you can drink wine. But, but it's like, it's like the way we're reading it now, and I think the way you're reading it now, is that we, we feel that the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil itself is somehow intrinsically evil. God put an evil tree in the middle of the garden. But there's but, this word evil there. Uh, it doesn't doesn't have the the, the knowledge of, of good and evil. It, it is not evil in itself. So so I'm what I'm saying is that we cannot say that God like put this tree in there to 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 trip them up. La, because then we will just be doing we'll be making the same mistake that Eve made. We, we are basically saying that God is not a good God. Lah. He put it there. You know, so I, I have a child, right? And then uh, I, put, I put rat poison there so I know my child will eat it. it, it it's, it's not like that. Lah. God is not like that. Yeah. Then he's like, what? <laughs> I still uh, cannot get it. Yeah, but you see, I think there's a very good question that someone uh, said in one of the books I read. Uh, I think about the cancer book or someone dying or something, it said, you know, God is not fair. Then if you say God is not fair, the next question that you ask yourself is compared to who and what. Lah. So, you know, you're basically, you're basically saying that if you were God, you would do it this way. Lah. But the question that's really being asked is, do you have all the information of God? And can you do what God does? Lah? If you were in God's shoes, would you still persevere with man through 66 books of the Bible and send your son to die for man? Lah? That, that is a question that the Bible is asking. So at the end of the day, we may not understand why God put the tree there, but we mustn't fall into the trap of Eve and listen to Satan and say, well, God cannot be very good because like, he put the tree there. He's the one at fault. Yeah, because in the sense then, we are actually then going down the slippery slope where we doubt God, then we mistrust God, then we reject God, and then we have no relationship with God. Because you, you see, the first two chapter of Genesis is about God creation. Very beautiful. Then the last uh, book is about uh, Revelation, also about second creation. So in between, majority of book is all about human suffering and how we need to go back to God. Um, so just like you say, uh, it's not may not be bad to have this knowledge, good and evil. It seems to me that maybe really God intention or maybe or is allow us to experience suffering then it seems like it seems to me the suffering is a very major thing in the mankind really you know how much suffering we have on this earth because of the scene right i feel like then become suffering is part of the very important lessons in our life uh that's a completely different question you i, I recommend you buy this book 
uh, because actually there are various reasons given the Bible for suffering. Like, I mean, some of it is discipline, some of it is sin, some of it is natural causes. Uh, but definitely, one thing that Don Carson does say, uh, which is the overall arc of the, the Bible, is, is that if we look back in eternity, the suffering that, that we see from Adam and Eve all the way through human history is actually uh, uh, light and momentary. So if, if, we, if we only see uh, things in terms of our lifetime, then we say, okay, you know, wow, that's terrible. But if we see in terms of going, uh, basically going beyond the death, then it's not so much of a problem, you see, because in the light of eternity, right, if, if death is actually subsumed and eliminated and we, we, we are in heaven with God, then these experiences, you know, what Adam and Eve did and the suffering that brings to the world will pale in comparison. Uh, and that's, that's a picture that the Bible brings. Uh. So the, 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 the philosophical question is, okay, people may not be happy with uh, suffering in this world, but uh, atheism and the rejection of God does not solve the problem of suffering in this world. In fact, it makes it meaningless uh, because without God, there is no suffering. Uh. It's just you're just atoms and you feel pain, but actually it's a subjective thing. Uh. But the Bible actually gives you a solution to suffering, right? Which is the new creation where there will be no more tears and no more suffering and things like that. Lah. So in the, in the storyline of the Bible, we are finding the, the solution to suffering. Lah. And, and God actually says that in the light of what's going to happen, the suffering that you feel uh, will, will actually be uh, something that you forget lah, in heaven. But I, I think it's quite interesting because uh, I watched... Uh, a documentary the other, the other day by David Attenborough and, and you know, about global warming and everything else. Uh, you know, talking about suffering, actually fundamentally, if you think about it, so much of suffering in the world is man-made, right? I mean, like, uh, it's because of human greed, uh, you know, uh, the lack of uh, love and generosity towards, you know, people. It, yeah, I mean, at, at the end of the day, uh, what we see in Genesis 3 and 4 onwards is actually what we see increasingly in the world today, which is consistent with the message in the book of Revelation, that things will get worse and worse, and that as God is rejected and men become God, that as we rule the world in our ungodly way, we destroy ourselves and bring increasing suffering upon everybody. Yeah. Hey, I realize that we actually have another eight questions to answer. So I, I think I better move along quickly. quickly. Yeah? You can ask me questions, ask me questions as we go along. So uh the sin exists before Adam because because the devil existed before Adam. <clears throat> Okay, at the, the definition of the word, uh, so I think it's very important for us to get definitions right. Uh, the word sin in the Bible, in the Hebrew and Greek, uh, literally means the idea of negligence, rebelling or revolt, guilt or error. La. Those are the three main ideas. Sin, negligence, rebelling, revolt, guilt, error, right? So um, I'm not sure whether sin existed before the sin of Adam, but sin definitely comes into the world before Adam. Oh, sorry, comes into the world through Adam. And because fundamentally it's about rebelling against God, uh, the guilt and error of not obeying God. So the question about the devil is not really taken up very much in the Bible. Okay, like, you know... Um, so the question that we, we, we often ask, you know, what, what's the serpent doing there in the, in, in the garden? Was, you know, was evil there at creation already? It doesn't seem to be a question that uh, the book of Genesis really uh, takes up. But sin does not exist in the world until Adam and Eve 
decide to to break or transgress or rebel against God. So um, as we kind of like looked at it in terms of the idea of compatibilism, the possibility of sin existed in the garden, right? Because they could doubt God, they could, in a sense, be tempted, but doubt and temptation itself are not sin. Sin is when there's actual transgression and rebellion against God. And that only happens when they, in a sense, miss the mark transgress or break the command of God and they revolt against God. Okay, so um, that's my answer to that question. Uh, okay, anybody got any questions? Then, yep. <clears throat> may, may I ask whether evil exists before the creation? Uh, that's not something that the Bible says, so I can't really answer. Yeah, it's it's not it's not in the passage, and so I I, I don't know really. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So if you believe that Satan is a fallen angel, then and angels are created beings, then definitely, uh, there is no, there is no evil before creation because uh, only God was in existence, right? Okay, sorry, I, I couldn't really answer better than that. Okay, let's move on to the next question. Um, what are you up to? Huh? Question eight. Oh, you only got 17 questions. All right. Uh, okay, I think this is the same question as before. Uh, would you say that we simply do not know how evil came to exist, even if we exist on the apparently opposing facts that God is an entirely good God and that everything that exists has been created by him? or at least that the capacity for it to exist has been created by him, and he chose to execute his plan uh, of creation that had evil exist in some part. So again, I think at the end of the day, this is not really a question about um, uh, evil, but it's, it's a question about compatibilism. It's like, I think God uh, creates with sovereign uh, purpose, but he allows the possibility of free will and human responsibility, and therefore evil is able to uh to uh to act in a, in in sin okay so that's the way that i will un i will understand and and reply to that question okay let, let's turn to the next question so the next question is completely different from all the ones you answered so far are we meant to be vegeta vegetarians okay so um i think that as we look at the bible the bible doesn't really look at food in terms of uh the categories of uh meat or vegetarian or veg vegetables lah. It doesn't look at it in terms of uh, uh, health benefits. Um, basically, uh, Genesis one and two is descriptive, and because it's descriptive, it doesn't tell us whether it's good or bad, right? Uh, we only told in the Bible, in Genesis chapter seven, about clean and unclean animals. So the idea of clean and unclean uh, animals is really a distinction for God's people to be different from. The nations around them, which do not have those clean and unclean animal distinctions. And then when we come to the New Testament, uh, we find that actually with the coming of Jesus, the distinctions between clean and unclean animals is also lost. So in that sense, uh, from God's perspective, he really doesn't really have much to say in terms of food types based on nutrition or types of animals or types of uh, 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 sorry uh, plants 
but it's more in terms of the distinctive uh, religious uh, elements that are found in their eating of the food, uh, whether they are clean or unclean foods. Uh. So in terms of vegetarians or, or vegans or, uh, you know, uh, keto diet, uh, yeah, the, the Bible doesn't really uh, uh, have, uh, have, uh, have um, I think, anything constructive to say in, in that regard. Lah. Okay. Okay, next question. Okay, why is it mentioned that there was evening and there was morning? Is it because they consider the previous day over only when they see the next day's light? Okay, this is a really interesting question because we would sort of think that the day begins in the morning and ends at night, right? Uh, so uh, I, I did a bit of investigation uh, and that uh, for the Jews, they always see the day as starting at sunset and beginning and, and ending at the next sunset. Lah. So for them, it's evening <clears throat> and morning the next day. Uh, so there's some confusion. Is it the Jews who already had that, that, uh, that practice? So Moses then uh, used that practice as a literary tool in Genesis 1? Or did the Jews adopt the practice because Genesis 1 was already written? So uh, I don't really know. I don't have the answer for that. Um, and that's that's the explanation that I could find. But uh, if anybody can enlighten me, that, that would be great. But yeah, any any thoughts? If not, I can move on some more. Okay, next question. I find evolution theory absurd, but one question is how to answer the challenges of the old earth theory by scientists, i.e. that billions, that the earth... Is billions of years old, backed by common dating of fossils. Okay, so this is a book I want to recommend to you here uh, by this guy called Francis Collins. Okay, he is he was the head of the Human Genome Project, which mapped the whole human uh, DNA. All right, so he's like super duper scientist lah, and. Um, he became a Christian after he became a scientist. So he was quite unique, right? Usually people become Christians, uh, you know, and then they become scientists or whatever. He became a Christian after he became a scientist. And uh, in this book, uh, The Language of Science and Faith, he actually proposes that, uh, that the compatibilism way of looking at, uh, oh, sorry, the concordant way of looking at science and the Bible is the right way forward. So actually, his view is that the the uh, the old Earth fossil carbon dating records is quite persuasive, and actually the majority of scientists would actually endorse it, So um, I think that if you do not accept the old Earth theory, then again, uh, I would then uh, ask you to maybe read some of uh, the writings of uh, George McDowell, and uh, what he does is he he, he challenges some of the ways that carbon dating and fossils are actually uh, uh, done and says, look, there's some inconsistencies there. Uh, another way of seeing it is maybe that if, in God's creation process, he already created uh, the world that is um, the way that we see it today, which is by added in the appearance of age. Okay, so that means God created it, but the fossils are already there. There was really carbon dating. And if God can create the world out of nothing, then that is a possibility. Okay, question 12. Another point 
Another one that is of more of interest and not critical for my faith apologetics is that John MacArthur said that in Genesis chapter 2, uh, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not yet had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. The shrub and plant in Hebrew, I think, refers to the type of vegetation that grew only after the fall, same for the rain. There was no rain at creation. Okay, the way I understand Genesis 2 really is that uh, Genesis 2 is an expansion of um, uh, the sixth day. So if you look at the, the Bible, um, uh, the shrubs already come on day three, right? So if man is created on day six, how come the shrubs are not there? It doesn't make sense, right? So the way that I understand Genesis 2 really is that there is a piece of land which uh, uh, um, is not <coughs> uh, having vegetation. Why? Because there are two problems. There was no rain and there was no one to work the ground. And therefore, once Genesis 2 presents us with a problem, then God sends water on that piece of land and then he creates man and woman to work the ground. So I think that kind of like solves the problem a lot uh, more simpler than uh, the way John MacArthur was sort of looking at, at it. Question 13. I had a question which talked about God's perfect plan for his creation. However, we also know that Jesus was right there. And from the study passages, we also know that it was God's plan that Jesus was to be the key to man's salvation. So would that mean his, his perfect creation of man was to sin because Jesus was already proof of the need for a savior? Okay, I, the way I would uh, see this is that actually at creation, uh, as we see from reading Genesis chapter 1, as well as John chapter 1, is that the role of Jesus at creation was to be the word, to be the creative word through which God the Father created uh, the world. So Jesus at creation uh, does not necessitate that Jesus is Savior. If you look at the Genesis passage, then what it suggests is that <clears throat> Jesus as Savior uh, is in response to a certain degree to the sin of man in Genesis chapter 3. So I think that we can't read um, uh, the Genesis account and say, okay, uh, God spoke and it was so, and see Jesus as his office in a sense, right? So office, so I think when we did um, our church camp last year in systematic theology, we, we see uh, the role or office or function of the Godhead in various things, right? So at creation, the office or the function or the role of Jesus was as co-creator, the word which creates. His office and function and role was not as savior. And so in that sense, we, we can't say that the appearance of Jesus as the word is proof that we need a savior. So if I'm looking at your uh, proposition in its logical terms, uh, uh, I think the appearance of Jesus at creation does not necessitate that he is a, that he will come as savior. It's only after Genesis three and God's promise of three fifteen that there will be a seed of the offspring who will crush the head of the serpent. That that we then see. Okay, then we look forward to this person who eventually ends up with Jesus, who will save. Uh. Hey, do you all still want to go on uh, or have a drink or anything? It's already been two hours. How? Uh? I got another four questions. 
Oh, you want me to just keep going on? Go on, please. Go on, please. Uh. Okay, I'm going to get a drink first. Yeah, uh, you can have a... Yeah, yeah, I'll get a drink. Hold on, I'll be back in one minute. Okay, uh, is everybody back? I can't see your pictures, so I don't know whether you're there or not. Yeah, I'm there. <laughs> oh, okay, that's good, that's good. For all I know, you, you all could be uh, watching TV or playing computer games. <laughs> no need to ask so detailed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think Pokim has gone off for a second. Where is she? Ah, uh? uh, Pokim. Hmm. Okay. Then go on to the next question. Okay, uh, this is a very good question as well. I think one minute up. I'll give you 15 seconds. Okay, again, I would uh, if I really recommend uh, this book, uh, How Long, O Lord, if you've got questions about evil and suffering and God's sovereign. Uh, he's also written a, another book, I think, about God's sovereignty and human responsibility. But but this book is really excellent if you get a chance to read it. So the question here is, is suffering from God or by man? Okay, so again, we already talked about this um, compatibilism. Right? Uh, fundamentally, uh, if we look at the Bible, we see that man's free will has brought suffering into the world. But God is also sovereign, right? So he knows that suffering has come into the world. So why can't God stop the suffering? If he's loving, why does he allow it on his people? So um, I think um, if, you, if you look at the, the, the Bible, the question of uh, is fundamentally around the word uh, inability, right? Inability. And that's exactly what this question is saying, right? Why can't? God stop the suffering. It's not that why won't God stop the suffering. It's why can't God stop the suffering. So God is unable to stop the suffering. And he's unable to stop suffering either because he is, um, he, he lacks the ability, right? Uh, that means he's too weak to stop the suffering, right? For whatever reason, it's just beyond him, right? He can create the world, but he can't stop people suffering. Or the other issue is maybe God is not good. Because if he was a good God, you see, if he's able and he doesn't stop suffering, then he cannot be that good, right? I mean, like, oh, sorry, not loving, right? Sorry, loving. The, the question, the, the text here says loving, right? He's not loving. Okay, so he's not good or he is not loving. He is not loving, okay? So uh, that presents us with uh, a problem, right? So we know that it cannot be that God lacks ability because if we believe God to be completely sovereign and he created the world, then he must have ability to stop suffering if he chooses to. So then why doesn't he stop suffering? Is it because he is not good? Well, actually fundamentally, uh, the, the, the question really comes to what uh, people say is the uh, inscrutability of God's purposes, right? That means 
we really don't understand why is it uh, he doesn't stop the suffering now. And I think that uh, part of the problem is that we see things in terms of our own perspective. So we feel that we should have a right uh, not to suffer. And I have to say this very sen sensitively because I actually wrote notes here where there are two ways to ask this question. We can ask this because we suffer as experience, right? I, 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 I have some terminal cancer, a loved one dies suddenly, uh, I go bankrupt, I experience physical pain, I have depression. And so I really, really struggle with this issue uh, right now. Like, why am I suffering, right? Or it could be a philosophical issue. It's, it's like something that I struggle with. I, I look at the suffering around the world and I just don't understand why God doesn't do anything about it right now. I think the problem is that we don't know why God doesn't stop the suffering and why God doesn't stop the suffering right now. But we do know that he promises at some time to stop the suffering. So if we go to this passage uh, in... Uh, Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. Uh, eh, wrong. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. Okay. Uh, we actually see that uh, there are people who are crying out uh, and they are calling out the words of, uh, of the book, right? How long, O Lord? Right? How long, O Lord? until you judge, judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood, right? And then he says, uh, then he gave each of them a white robe and were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants and sisters had been killed just as they had been. So if we read this passage, we think, well, that's terrible, right? Because here are people who are suffering terribly and they want God to end suffering on earth now and to avenge their blood. But God allows suffering to go on for his own reasons, so we just don't know why, right? So that's where the inscrutability of God comes in, I think. That we don't know why God continues to allow suffering in the world, you know, but he has his reasons. But the book of Revelation reminds us that suffering will end at some point in time. And so the solution to suffering is not, in a sense, to understand but to look forward to the long game, to look forward to the long term to heaven. And that's, that's the perspective that the Bible takes. Uh, so next year, we are hoping to do two, 1 and 2 Peter. And, and in that sense, uh, there is suffering in one, two, uh, one, and, 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And again, the answer is look forward to, um, to, to, to Jesus coming again. Yeah. Anybody got any questions on that? I've heard someone say um, that uh, with suffering, right, it's because of man's sin. Yeah, fundamentally, if you look at the book of Romans, uh, it is, sin has brought suffering into the world. Creation is cursed. Uh, and, and sin has now, like if you look in uh, Genesis 5 and 6, uh, has, has brought gross wickedness and violence into the world. So um, if you actually look at some books on uh, 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 suffering in this world. So I think C.S. Lewis, The Problem of Pain, uh, Philip Yancey, his book, How Long a Lot. Uh, and actually says that if you think about it, if, if we just think about it for a moment, the, the vast majority of suffering in this world is caused by man's sinfulness. La. You think about war, 
you think about oppression, you think about um, the lack of rich people sharing with poor people, uh, you think of uh, exploitation of people, uh, all sorts of uh, suffering in the world. If you, took out, if you took away humanity as a component, the amount of suffering that we would experience in, in, you know, in this world would be a lot less, right, if, if you really think about it. Like what, most of the times when we really suffer, it's, 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 it, you know, it has a man-made um, uh, component to it, apart from a serious disease. Huh? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the reason why I said that is because it's kind of hard, especially when you're sitting at someone's deathbed and then the loved one is asking, oh, you know, why, why, why is this happening to my loved one? It's kind of hard to say, oh, because of man's sin, that's why your loved one is suffering. And I think uh, that's really the, you know, the, the question when, it's not very easy to, 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 to listen, right? When you say, oh, why, why is my loved one suffering? It's because of your sin. Right? It's always such a hard thing to say to someone. Yeah, I, I don't think that would be pastorally sensitive. Uh, what I would actually say is, actually, God brings the answer to suffering. And actually, uh, if, if you actually want to really reflect on uh, the issue of death, uh, as Christians, we, if we truly are convicted of uh, the afterlife, uh, death actually, in, in some senses, brings an end to suffering. Because death brings us to a place where suffering has, cannot touch us anymore. So in many senses, if I had suffering and I had cancer and terminal cancer, um, where do you find final relief if you do not get better? Right? As a Christian, you know that when you die, you will be, you, you, your next destination is heaven to be with God where there will be no more suffering. Right? So um, to, to a certain degree, you're, obviously you don't want to say that you want someone's relative to die, but from a Christian perspective, uh, you know, when, when you, like some of the, uh, the conversations which are recorded in various books, uh, for Christians, they, they actually look at suffering as a release from, uh, sorry, death as a suffering from, uh, release from suffering. Yeah. I which think, is really countercultural, really, when you think about it, right? I mean, that's, uh, assuming the, the person who, who, who dies is going is, is gonna to enjoy eternity in heaven, but if he is not, you know, saved then he his suffering continues on right that's right that's right yeah correct mm. yeah yeah thanks <laughs> okay okay any other questions okay uh, yep, yep, yep. how do um is it wrong or, or is it correct to say that god love is unconditional uh unconditional yes to all people yes i mean in the sense that uh, he loves you no matter who you are, what you've done, and I mean, that, in that sense, yes, yeah. But then, why I have some impression, God loves is also conditional. Uh, why? Okay, so why do you get that impression? Why? Because especially in Old Testament, there's so many like, like, like you just like uh, also back to Genesis, right? Mm. Um, there's a condition there. I I feel like that um, it's like you behave well and you're good and eventually you will back to good time with God. But if you don't follow what God's um, taught you, then you'll be going to punishment mood. That this general impression. Mm, mm, mm. And I think that someone, someone told me that, that the Old Testament have so much emphasis on 
very angry and punishing God. But then suddenly go to New Testament, the God becomes suddenly so loving. I think that um, the character of God as he, see God cannot disown himself la. so God's character is one of perfect holiness right so uh, the, the, the first sentence in our, the Lord's prayer is hallowed be your name right so hallowed is like holy be your name right so the, 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 the first characteristic of God is he's holy so God's loving character cannot like he's not, he's not like a, a, a schizophrenic person. He's kind of a split personality, right? He's at once holy and he's at once fully loving. So he, he offers Jesus to, to in a sense, uh, give um, uh, an opportunity for people to escape the judgment that comes from his absolute holiness. So if you choose not to want to come to him, to receive that gift, then, then in a sense, you cannot benefit from it. So if you say there's a condition, then uh, in a sense, that is a condition. Because uh, I offer you, let's say, uh, I'm unconditionally loving you. I, I, I give you food, I give you money, whatever. But unless you come to me to receive it, I cannot chase after you to stuff the food down your mouth and stuff, it, stuff the money in your pocket, so to speak, right? Uh, hello, are you there? Nora? <laughs> I'm thinking about I'm not quite sure. Um, I, um, I don't know. Not very convincing. <laughs> uh, it's not about convincing you. No, I, I just don't feel uh, some I, I don't know how to put these two concepts together. I really feel I truly believe God is unconditional love. But at the mm. same time I also I feel like sometimes it's become conditional. Well, it, it is a fundamentally, uh, uh, the, the, you know, we cannot, um, we cannot minimize uh, the parts in the Bible which talk about how faith must be authentic. Lah. So if I come back to recognizing God as God and say that I, I, I you know, I'm very thankful to you, I love you, then I cannot live in a, in a different way. Lah. So, Yes, in terms of God's love is unconditional, but but my response to him must be sincere, right? And if it's sincere, it must be seen in things that I do. It, it cannot be that I just do whatever I want and I still I still feel that well, uh, you know, I'm still worshiping God and loving him. Because it's just like in a marriage, right? Or in, in in some sort of relationship, my words are meaningless without actions. So if I say I accept Jesus and you know and the death of Jesus on the cross, I must also accept Jesus as my my ruler. I must accept him as God. Right? I cannot accept one part of him and reject the other. There's, there's no dichotomy. Jesus as Savior and God are the same, one and the same. And I think the Bible warns us very clearly that that, that you know, like the parable of the uh, of the you know. The son who ran away, you have to come back to God, lah. God, you know, like God is waiting with open open arms for you, but you must want to come back to Him. You see, if you want to stay far away, then you cannot receive the love that He wants to offer you, lah. You know, so like the prodigal son, if he doesn't come back to the father, he will not receive the father's love. It's just as simple as that, lah.
Um, I'm still thinking about it. Okay, okay, think some <laughs> yeah. more. Okay, yeah. let's move on to the next question. Question 15. Okay, how do the existence of the dinosaurs fit into what God says about creation? Okay, so uh, I think we kind of touched on this already. It depends on how you view uh, Genesis 1, lah. Whether you see it as a seven-day creation or whether you see it as, uh, as more in terms of intelligent design. If it's intelligent design, then dinosaurs have no problem because God worked through the dinosaurs in order to, to, to come to where we are today. Uh. Um, okay, so okay, some more questions. Okay, so tied into this is how does the existence of the universe and solar system fit into Genesis chapter 1? Okay, I think this is helpful because I do feel that even though uh, Genesis chapter 1 uh, may not speak in terms of a strict 24-hour, seven-day creation. It does say a lot of things about the creation act itself. La. So creation actually in, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, uh, said that God actually created out of nothing. And the first thing he created was uh, light. And I think in the sermon that I preached, uh, I, I mentioned, oops, wrong passage. Uh, I mentioned that actually uh, this was very consistent with the Big Bang Theory which is um, the most accepted theory in the world today in, in the creation, right? So God said, let there be light, and there was light. And so um, when you actually uh, look at creation, uh, there is a sense at which uh, creation comes about from the, the Big Bang in, in the beginning. La. So they believe that there's this thing called, is it here, did I write it here? Uh, there's this thing called singularity. So Big Bang basically says there's a singular event which causes everything that we see around us. And, and they, they, they actually said that the first thing that comes from this singularity is light. So uh, that's why many scientists actually say that actually it's consistent with what the Bible says. Uh, the other thing that the Genesis chapter 1 says is that God is a very orderly God, right? So there's this thing called the anthrop anthropic cosmological principle, which actually talks about how um, the the you know, like you have all these laws of the of the of, of physics, which are required at exactly the right proportion for the universe to exist as they are today, la. So the probability of conditions of life to exist is actually one to the power to of ten to the power of two hundred and twenty nine. So that's that's how how uh, miraculous the existence of life actually is, la. Okay, so uh, like what Stephen Hawking said, the rate of expansion one second after the Big Bang had to be smaller than even one part of a hundred thousand million million, uh, or the universe would have recollapsed before it even reached its present size. Uh, so it's like it has to be exactly right. If not, the, the universe would have blown out and, and, and been too big and it just wouldn't exist, or the universe would have recollapsed back into itself. So... Um, so I do feel that actually the, the Bible does tell us a bit uh, in Genesis 1 about the creation of the universe and the solar systems. That God uh, created out of light in a singularity and he's an orderly God and all the, the, the rules and the laws of physics have been just right in order for us to have life in this world today. Uh, I think there was another quote by this guy which was quite remarkable. And uh, this is what he says. He says, um, uh, a common sense interpretation of facts uh, suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as chemistry and biology, and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelmingly, so overwhelming as to put this conclusion uh, beyond question. So what this Fred Hoyle guy says as a super intellect 
uh, basically is what we regard as the God of the Bible. Okay, so that's the answer to this question. Uh, anybody got any more questions? And then if not, we'll finish off. I think there's only one last question left. Okay, last question. Where is it? Okay, 617. Okay, are the first few chapters of Genesis meant to be taken literally as scientific fact or as a poor poetic metaphorical representation of this world? If the former, how do we reconcile it with a certain scientific observations as other questions have noted and things like there being light before sun, stars existed, which the author and the first readers must have known were quite unnatural even during that time. And if the latter, how do we draw the line between the literal and metaphorical and why? Are Adam and Eve metaphorical too? Or uh, they are 900 plus year old descendants or Noah? Okay, so this is kind of like a combination of the questions that we already answered before. Um, but I think what's interesting is that uh, even, so okay, now we, we kind of think, okay, we are, the lines are sharply drawn between science and Genesis 1. And therefore, okay, maybe people uh, are now going back to Genesis 1 and, and revisiting and seeing whether it's a literary or whether it's a scientific. But even before uh, the scientific world was like thinking about the creation uh, event in terms of a scientific way, uh, early, very prominent early theologians had already read Genesis 1 and said, actually, in their opinion, they see it as a literary uh, description rather than a scientific one. So Origen, uh, if you do your church history, was a, is a very prominent third century theologian. And he said, what person of intelligence asks will consider as a reasonable statement that the first and the second and third day in which there are said to be both morning and evening existed without the sun, moon, and stars, while the first day was even without heaven. I do not think anyone will doubt that these are figurative expressions which indicate certain mysteries through a semblance of history. Okay, another person, Augustine. Uh, we all know Augustine. Okay, he's a very, very famous theologian. He wrote that he did not have a literal reading of the opening chapters of Genesis. Okay, Thomas Aquinas also uh, did not feel there was a tension between science and the opening of Genesis. So you can see already between the first to the 15th century, uh, before there were major challenges uh, to, uh, to the understanding of creation because uh, the, uh, the Origin of Species uh, by uh, Charles Darwin only was published in 1859, right? So these people here, Origin, Augustine, Aquinas, they, they, they were never challenged by the theory of evolution. Already they, they felt that um, the, the reading of Genesis did not have to be read in a... Um, in a literal way. So uh, that's how I'll answer the question. And I think I really answered the question about Adam and Eve. So that brings us to all the questions. And uh, if you have any more questions, feel free to uh, put it in the chat box or you can ask it uh, verbally. Okay, uh, you all must be tired, really, is it? <laughs> no more questions? Okay, if no more questions, I'll, I'll close in prayer. All right, dear Father, we want to thank you so much for your word, and we thank you so much that you are such a good God who has created us, created this world, and, and continues to 
to invite us to be saved and to bring us back to the original intention of the Garden of Eden. Uh, dear Father, we pray that some of our questions may have been resolved and even if they're not fully resolved, that uh, they will not lead to unbelief or uh, renunciation of our faith, uh, but rather we will be willing to leave them as mysteries, acknowledging that you are a God and like Job said, you are too great and mighty for our thoughts. So dear Father, we pray for our continued reading of your word. Give us insight, give us strength of heart and mind and help us to see that truly uh, for eternity, we will be with you uh, if we continue to walk faithfully with you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.